0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching.
1: Today's teaching text comes from Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor. And power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God for the people of God.
0: Thanks be to God. Y'all can stay standing, and let's share together the Apostles' Creed in a nice loud voice. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. I feel like I should begin by addressing this situation right here. The little pulpit thing that I used uh, broke. It was cute, and I needed to replace it, and um, I don't know if you know this, I'm a tall man, and so I needed to find something tall, and I found this online and I built it and I thought this thing is a monstrosity it looks like a stool for a giant <laughs> and then I stood behind it and Nina took my picture and I thought maybe I am a giant it comes just up to my belt but I thought I'm not going to be able to preach without saying this is a stool for a giant Well, today we're wrapping up our study of the Apostles' Creed. It's been 10 weeks. Have you learned something if you've been around? Okay, good. I feel like for me it's been a a really rich exploration in the basics of of the Christian faith. I I do hope that it's been meaningful to you. And we're ending with the very, very good ending of God's story. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And one of the things that I've hoped to do in teaching through the Apostles' Creed, but really in teaching systematically through the Bible over the last handful of years and hopefully for many more years to come, God willing, is to orient us in God's story. To help us to appreciate that our lives in all of human history and the cosmos are, are not something of our own invention, but we find ourselves in the middle of a story that God Himself is authoring. God chose to make all things. God chose to create humanity. God God created this grand narrative of which we find ourselves a part. And the the end of history will be when when God brings everything to its stunning conclusion and we begin the next chapter into the great unknown. But it's very easy to forget in, in our world as it is, with our hearts as they are, that we're in the middle of God's story. We have Too many diapers to change, and it's too difficult just to make ends meet, and we try to keep up our relationships, and it's very easy to forget that we're part of God's big story. And so one of the gifts that God gave uh, to the people of Israel was this way of remembering and reenacting and living into God's story on a weekly basis and on an annual and a seasonal basis. God gave His people these, these rhythms, these ways of behaving together that could train their hearts to remember that they're in His story. One of the most basic ways in, in the week of, of six days of work and a day of rest calls to mind the story of creation, how God created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested and delighted in the things that He made. And so as the people of Israel would work for six days, and on that seventh day, enjoy rest, they would remember how God is the author of creation, and I am not the captain of my own destiny. It also called to mind the story of the Exodus, how after God had led his people out of 400 years of slavery and they crossed through the Red Sea and they found themselves at Mount Sinai, God gave in one of his top ten most important things to do, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And in the, the account of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, he says, For remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord led you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That just by virtue of taking a day off every week, they would remember God created all things and God has delivered us from slavery. We are not slaves to our work. We don't have to earn an identity. We can just rest in the fact that God is superintending creation toward its intended end. The weekly rhythm of work and rest was a way of habituating themselves to remember the story. You may also remember in the book of Exodus, how God gave them these festivals, these feasts, these seasonal times of, of remembrance. You remember the, the Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Firstfruits, or Pentecost, or Atonement, or Booths where every year, in the seasons of the year, they would act out different parts of, of their own story, the things that God had done for them in the past and was doing for them in the present. It reminds them God is, is the, the genesis. God is the generating force be- behind all of existence. We want to live inside God's, God's rhythms of creation. And in giving them these weekly and these annual and seasonal rhythms, God relieved them of the burden of spontaneity and self-direction by giving them these communal habits. It wasn't on them to just make up a, a, a rule of life or a manner of living to keep the memory of alive of what God was doing. God gave them these practices. Uh, he told them what to remember. He told them how to remember. He said, okay, on this day, read this, pray this, do this. It's keeping the memory alive through their communal habits. And these communal habits function a bit like a trellis does with a vine. If you want to grow a vine, it needs something to hold on to. And so these communal habits of remembering seasons of feasting, seasons of fasting were like a trellis that a vine could hold on to and it would support it enough to grow it to a place of health. And similarly, when we do things like praying liturgies, the liturgies themselves are not magical. There's definitely a way to, to read them that is rote and means nothing to you, doesn't pierce your, really, like your consciousness or your heart. But it can be like a trellis with a vine. It gives your, your prayers, your faith, some structure, something to hold on to. Because what happens when we, we have to bear the burden of spontaneity and self-direction in prayer is that we often pray in our mother language. And our mother language, in this case, is not English, it's, it's selfishness. We pray in ways that are entirely self-serving. And so, like you go to a trainer to teach you how to do the movements that are going to help you to be well and to grow strong, sometimes we need to go to the Psalms or go to the Lord's Prayer, go to prayers that the churches use used to train us to pray aligned with the heart of the kingdom. These calendric uh, discipleship models that God gave the people, these things like liturgies are ways of training our hearts. Now, if you go to uh, the early church, you know, they, they came directly from the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had been trained with this calendar-driven approach to discipleship, these uh, communal habits. They're so ingrained in their, in, in their way of living that as, as Jesus came into the world fulfilled the story of Israel and the church was born, uh, believers began to adapt the story of Jesus and bring it into their annual rhythms of uh, behaving together. And every year, they, they retold the story of Jesus coming into the world and Jesus being circumcised, Jesus being baptized, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, His passion. They, they reenacted the story as a way to keep the gospel front and center. And by the fourth century, we have developed in large part what we now call the church calendar or the Christian year. These seasons and these days of, of remembering what God has done. Now, the first season, many of you know, it, this is a, the season of Advent has now been co-opted by like the lords of commerce in Oklahoma in, in America because you can go to Aldi and get an Advent cheese calendar <laughs> and a wine calendar and a chocolate calendar and like there's a dog bone calendar, Advent calendar for your dog. The great irony of this, of course, is, is what the season of Advent was originally all about. If you go to Mark chapter 1, the, the gospel begins not with Jesus, but it begins with John the Baptist saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. And so the church began, practiced this season of Advent not as a season of like, gluttony, but as a season of fasting. And so they fasted, and they prayed, and they repented ahead of the celebration of Christmas. They, they, they fasted as a way of acknowledging their need of a Savior who will come into the world. Uh, Advent is actually known as a kind of little lint. It's a season to reflect on your sins, to reflect on how much you need God and, and in preparation for Jesus coming into the world, which we, of course, celebrate at Christmas. And church calendar nerds will put snarky tweets out there around, you know, in the middle of Advent and Advent. Remember, Christmas is not just a day, it's a 12-day feast. That is true. Christmas is meant to be a season of celebration, remembering that Christ has come into the world. Now, interestingly, for, for uh, the Christians in, in early centuries, the season following Christmas was actually a bigger deal than Christmas because Epiphany remembers the magi, the wise men, coming to Jesus. And you think, for a sect that began within Judaism, why would Epiphany be such a big deal? Because we have in the Gospels these, uh, these Gentile astrologers, bringing gifts of homage and worship to the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And it foreshadowed for the early church, so many of whom were Gentile and being grafted into the story of Israel, that God was foreshadowing that He was the Savior of all the world, not just one nation of the world. So Epiphany following Christmas was this great season of of celebration. We celebrate that the light has come to shine. Jesus has come to be the Savior of all the world epiphany leads us to ash wednesday many of you have been to an ash wednesday service where someone will put ashes on your forehead and say you know repent and believe the gospel or you're into to dust you will return Uh, we held an ash wednesday service here i don't know if it was last year a couple of years ago at the old building and i went to a pizza place afterward with the ashes on my forehead and uh, the person who was serving me clearly did not know what was happening he said he was like trying to be really polite and he said hey you've Yeah, I may not be the only person tonight who comes in like that. But Ash Wednesday begins this season of Lent. It's a season of repentance. And and traditionally, Lent was a season of uh, fasting and repentance ahead of people being baptized on Easter Sunday. And so uh, a catechumen, someone who is being trained in the faith, who is uh, going to become a baptized Christian, uh, would spend this season of about 40 days mirroring Jesus' 40-day period of temptation in the wilderness, preparing to be baptized, where uh, on Easter Sunday they would go into usually a river. They might be buck naked and they would be baptized. They would be invited for the first time to join the church in corporate worship and then to receive the Eucharist Holy Communion for the very first time. But Lent was the season of preparation, and so along with those who would be baptized, the church practiced the season of reflecting on our sins. And so very common in the season of Lent, people will give things up. Uh, Quite memorable memorable in my life, Emily and I were dating, we were teenagers, and Emily Odom, sitting right there, gave me up for Lent. Lent. And it's not like she broke up with me and we just called it that. No, she expressly gave me up for Lent. In fairness, things have worked out pretty well, so maybe you should try that. (laughs) But in Lent, people often give things up, give up habits like, you know, coffee or or social media, or, or even better, take things on, virtuous practices like reading the Bible and prayer And uh, Lent is a season of repentance, and yet every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And so usually people don't observe those things because Sunday is a resurrection day. It's a feast day, which leads us to Holy Week. Holy Week kicks off with Palm Sunday where uh, we remember how Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people lauded him as king. Many of them later that week would be shouting, crucify, crucify, and Jesus wept because they misunderstood the nature of his kingship. Palm Sunday kicks off this week. It leads to, it's called the Tritium, maybe a new word for many of you Tritium, T R I D U U M. The, the, the days of uh, Maundy Thursday, where Jesus instituted, called the Lord's Supper, and the wash of the disciples' feet. Good Friday, how Jesus gave his life for the life of the world. Holy Saturday, where Jesus was laid in the tomb, and uh, this, the scriptures teach us he went and preached to those who from the time of Moses had died. Is the mystery of Holy Saturday. And then, of course, we remember uh, Easter Sunday where Jesus uh, proved himself victorious over the powers of uh, sin and death. Uh, following Easter Sunday, we have the season of Eastertide. It's a longer celebration than the fasting season of Lent. It would lead to uh, ascension where we remember that Jesus has, been ascend- has ascended as king over all the earth. This would lead us to, this, to Pentecost, the descent of the Spirit, and then the following Sunday is Trinity Sunday. And this, fall, beginning kind of in December and leading to about the end of school, takes us through most of the named days in the church calendar, and the season that follows is called Ordinary Time, or the season after Pentecost. And Ordinary doesn't mean like regular, it means named, because it's you know, the first week, second week, third week after Pentecost. And all of it leads to this Sunday, and this Sunday is called Christ the King Sunday. It's kind of the New Year's Eve of the church calendar. We remember that the, the story that started in the incarnation of Jesus, which we'll begin to prepare for next week in Advent, uh, will be consummated. Christ will be enthroned as king over all the earth, and all people will see him. And so today is the, the New Year's Eve of, of the church calendar. And I didn't grow up with any of this. Some of you say, I, this is all new to me. Okay, yeah, a couple of you, Yeah. I didn't grow up with any of this other than Christmas and Easter. And I was like, man, is this just a Catholic thing? And it turns out that most of the church and most of the world actually practices these rhythms on an annual basis. And and there's a certain brilliance to it. There are seasons of fasting followed by seasons of feasting. And we need, there's, there's an emotional balance across the seasons. There are things that we should mourn and things that we should fast for and repent of and also there's cause for celebration in the world, and the the church calendar kind of trains us to live into this. In beginning today as a church, we're going to begin to lean into these things a a little bit more, and we're going to learn together along the way uh, what it means. So we're going to practice the church calendar, but we're additionally going to do two more things. Beginning next week, I'm going to do something that I have never done before, something that I feel a little bit nervousness about and a little bit of excitement about, I'm going to begin doing what's called preaching the lectionary. To some of you, you'll be like, well, yeah, duh. But preaching the lectionary is this idea. You remember the story in the Gospels where uh, Jesus was in Capernaum, and, and he went up to read the scroll that was assigned for the day, and he held the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read the words, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you know, freedom for the captive, and he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and say, uh, "This was fulfilled in your hearing." He read what was assigned for the day. To preach the lectionary is to preach texts, to explore texts with a congregation that have been assigned by somebody else. This is an ancient, historic practice, and something that the, the Anglican Church does. So, across the calendar year, you're reading the Old Testament and the Psalms, and, and, Newt, and the New and Gospels and the Epistles. And part of the adventure of it is we're going to end up studying texts that I would absolutely never choose on my own. And if we believe that all scriptures God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, like, we got to study the whole thing. And so the Book of Common Prayer, a tool that, that Anglicans across the world use, uh, uses assigns on a three-year rotating basis these texts, the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, Gospel epistles, and we're going to begin practicing this together. Now, i got to tell you, the text assigned for next week, the first Sunday of Advent, is Luke 21, and it is a doozy. And as I was looking at the text, I thought, surely we can start on something slightly easier than this. But we're just jumping in. And so for the season of Advent, we're going to be, in Advent and Epiphany, we're going to be in the Gospels, mostly the Gospel of Luke. For the season of Lent, we're going to be primarily in the Psalms. For the season of Eastertide following Holy Week, we're primarily going to be in the book of Revelation, and then following that, we'll be in a combination of some topical preaching and some study in the lectionary. That's one thing we're going to do. It's an adventure, just saying, God, you set the agenda for us. I'm not just going to pick texts that I'm good with and already know how to preach, but no, God, you set the agenda for us, and I think it's going to be fun. The second thing we're going to do beginning in January is I'm going to invite you, invite us together to practice an all-church Bible reading and prayer plan. Uh, I am convinced that the majority of us hardly ever read the Bible and hardly ever pray, and we're worse for it, like the plants that I keep killing at my house because I never water them. Uh, we're, We're suffering for lack of oxygen, for lack of water, for lack of nutrients, and so we'll be sharing a daily Bible reading plan that has the Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalms, we're going to make cute, cute little bookmarks that you can have with you. We're going to put them out in the weekly emails. Uh, but all of this is, is the, in the interest of being people who are deeply nourished by the Word. And people who are trained to abide in Jesus. It says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me and I abide in you, uh, you'll, you'll flourish. You'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We want to be deeply nourished by the Word. We want to be trained to, to abide in Christ through prayer, and we also want to be steeped in God's story, doing what Romans 12.2 says, not being conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but transformed because our minds are being renewed. Education is primarily about the stuff that you know, but formation and learning to be shaped by the gospel, which is the mission of our church, has to, has to do with what we habitually do together, our habits. It's, it's, it's what we repeatedly do in the rhythms of our lives, and so we're going to lean into this with a little greater intensity as a community. So I wanted you to know. I hope that you had your Bible open for the text that we just read, where in Revelation chapter 7, you may want to open there. It's a really brilliant passage in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. And if you'll recall, maybe you remember that scene in Revelation chapter 5 where all of heaven is in mourning because they can't find anyone to open the scroll, which is kind of a cryptic Language gives the vision there's no one who can unveil God's plans for the future. And then suddenly a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, appears before the throne of God, and all of heaven erupts in worship because Jesus, the, uh, the, the, from the stump of Jesse, the son of David, has come, and he can open the scroll, and heaven erupts in worship. And in Revelation chapter 7, Jesus is presented as this lamb who's bringing to his father the rewards of his suffering. First John says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And in Revelation 7, Jesus is presenting the rewards of His suffering, the rewards of His atonement. And before the throne of God, there's this great throng of people. It says, an innumerable crowd of every nation, tribe, people, and language, and these people are in worship. They're robed in white, the the stain of sin has has been forever washed away, washed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb's sacrifice. This great multitude are holding palm branches which are emblematic of the victory of God over His enemies. Now, the book of Revelation can be a little bit trippy. You've got dragons and beasts and you know colorful language and imagery, and I've largely ignored it except for the last two chapters and the letters to the churches at the very beginning because it is a it is wild, and I think I'm especially off put by it because the people who seem to have a little too much certainty about what it means and they've got the charts and they can tell you the day when everything is going to go down, and they're usually on television, and uh, and I so I struggle with the book of Revelation and. Eugene Peterson, a, a pastor, and author I really like, talked about how Revelation can be difficult to understand because of some of these TV preacher types who, who make it all very confusing or who have too much over-certainty. Peterson says, There are just so many people who teach on Revelation who are simply foolish and who, like pushy guides at a tourist site, try to get us to hire them to tell us all about the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. Peterson struggles with these people because it said John was given this vision for a, a very practical purpose, for a pastoral purpose. John may have had this vision and, and shared this with the churches at a time of intense persecution, maybe even under the persecution of the emperor Nero. And this vision was given for very practical purposes for people going through uh, difficulty. It was a pastoral purpose to stoke their Christian imagination. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I, as I've said a billion times, I really love the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I listen, I'm not going to quote him, don't worry. (laughs) But I've done that enough. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm often listening to lectures in the car about his works or I'm I'm often rereading some book of his because it just makes sense to me. And the thing that I love about it is, it's not what you might guess, that it's escapist, but actually what I love about Tolkien is I feel like he gives me a dramatized version of the world that I'm already living in. There's something about reading Tolkien that makes me feel a little more grounded and present in the world where we are, and, and the book of Revelation serves a very similar purpose. Revelation is this kind of graphic novel or comic book view of what God was doing among the people in, in the first century and beyond. And about all of this, Peterson says, we need this kind of voice, this kind of like coming from a totally different angle. He says, God's faithfulness new every morning finds me heavy-lidded. It's just just hard to see God's faithfulness sometimes. He says, I'm thick-skinned to the Spirit's breeze. I'm dull-eared to the heavens declaring the glory of God. Is there no vision that can open our eyes to the abundant life of redemption in which we're immersed by Christ's covenant? Is there a trumpet that can wake us up to the intricacies of grace, the profundities of peace, the repeated and unrepeatable instances of love that are under and over and around us? And he says this is what we have in the book of Revelation. It helps to wake us up, to see things from God's point of view and to rediscover ourselves as a being in the middle of God's unfolding story. So go back to that image that we see in Revelation chapter 7, the Lamb, the throne, the great throng of people, the elders, the living creatures, the angels. And this vision helps us to get a picture, to stoke our imagination of what what it might be like when when creation reaches its conclusion, when history reaches its denouement. We see, now just picture this, we're we're a rather ethnically homogenous group in this room. So don't picture this. We should change that, by the way. Invite people. The picture around the throne, people of every tribe and nation and language on earth. Picture before the throne of God, Iraqis and Azeris. Picture Bengalis standing next to Canadians, Bolivians and Ghanans, and American believers, men and women, young and old, rich and poured the most diverse group of people you could possibly imagine, gathered around the throne, robed in white, united in adoration of the Lord Jesus, holding palm branches to signify palms of peace flowing from Christ's victory. After the difficulty and the tumult and the tribulation that is human history, when our faith becomes sight, all of that great multitude cries out together, salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. After all of these years and millennia in human history of waiting and wondering and hoping that we were aligned with what was true, we see Him who our hearts desire, and all of, all of the company of humankind just shouts out, All hail, King Jesus! And the great multitude around the throne, in response to this, shouts out, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. I preached on judgment a couple of weeks ago, and for me it was a really helpful study. And if you have questions about heaven, hell, judgment, things like that, I hope that you'll listen to it. I think we, we explored some really meaningful things. But in the sermon a couple of weeks ago, I said that I believe that on the other side of the throne that no one will be able to say that God was unjust and no one will be able to say that God was unmerciful. And when all things are made clear and we're around the throne, you can imagine all of humanity crying out to God, you were right all along. We were in the wrong. You were good all along and we were confused. You were wise and we were fools. You are everything that is true and good and beautiful. All of creation shouts it out. And the angels just say, amen. That's true. John, in his vision, asks what's going to happen next with this great multitude of people. And he asks an elder, and the elder describes this group of people in in robes and holding the palm branches, saying, they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. This may mean quite literally won't be abused by the sun, but also uh, church fathers talked about how the sun in this kind of context might refer to temptation. We're no longer just beaten down by the temptations of life. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I've, I've talked rather extensively, if you've been in our community, about the topic of resurrection. I did uh, three weeks on resurrection a couple of years ago. We talked about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I've talked about the life eternal. But today I want to present it in terms of six great hopes six great hopes of the age to come. The first great hope of the age to come is what I'm calling the great revelation. When Christ returns, the mysteries of faith will be revealed and we'll see him. It can be really difficult to believe that any of this is true. Um, It can be difficult. People ask really good questions that blow your mind. I don't know how to answer that. People discover things, make compelling arguments, and and, and it can be difficult to believe at times. But in the age to come, there will be a great revelation, and we'll see Him. Those perennial arguments and perennial frustrations, trying to make sense of God and the world and and, and the Word, will come together. I think God will be proven right. There's this great verse in, in 1 John chapter 3. John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. But what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, notice, it doesn't say when we all get to heaven. The language of the New Testament is about Christ appearing, about the return of Jesus to the earth, heaven and earth coming together, excuse me. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Won't that be an incredible relief to not have to guess or wonder anymore? we not have to ask why anymore, but to actually see him as he is, unmediated and unfiltered. Paul said in First Corinthians 13, We see now as through a glass dimly, but one day we will see face to face. In the age to come, there will be a great revelation, and we'll see him. And the, the intimacy, sorry Bill, the intimacy of he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Man, that close. He wasn't crying Bill, <laughs> reenactment. That's the first great hope. The second great hope that I want to share of the age to come is the great resurrection. Now, there's a, I, I've taught about this a lot. I hope it's beginning to sink in. I think that when it comes to the Christian hope and resurrection, it's something that, like, you hear the word resurrection again and again and again and again, and you keep applying it to, that's just a different way of saying going to heaven. It's not. It's not. Heaven is where you go if you die before Christ's return, but the future in Christian hope is about the reunion of heaven and earth and the resurrection of bodies. I'll never forget my friend J.D. Walt, who leads a group called Seedbed, was put a video on Instagram one Easter Sunday where he took his sons to a cemetery and they brought their skateboards. And these boys on their skateboards were riding through the cemetery, preaching the good news to these headstones. Johnson, hear the good news. Christ is raised from the dead, and you will too. Williams, hear the good news. Christ has been raised from the dead. When Christ returns, our great hope is the resurrection of the body, which means when Christ returns, the cemetery is going to be an awesome place to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. This is one of the preferred Bible ways of talking about people who love Jesus who die. And then again, remember the conversation about metaphors and the body? We have a metaphor of sleep, because if you sleep, you're going to wake up. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no hope. For we believe that Christ Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive when He returns, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. As N.T. Wright said, heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. Christian hope is resurrection. There's the great revelation, that there's a great resurrection, that following the great resurrection, there will be a great reunion. My grandfather died this week. Uh, the last of my grandparents, I feel for my, my dad, who's I lost his dad. And you think about man, just how common death is, and it hurts every time. Even if you don't know the person, to know that a person died, that that hurts, that barb sticks under you. I think about people that I didn't have a chance to know as well as I, I want to, there will be a great reunion. What a gift. Therefore, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Not only will there be a great reunion of us with the patriarchs <laughs> and with, with, with Mary, with the disciples, with, with the, those we, we love who've gone before us who are now asleep in Christ, there will be a reunion of heaven and earth. <laughs> as strange as a result of human rebellion and sin, the, the whole cosmos is going to come back together. God's dwelling among the people intimate enough that He can wipe away our tears, there's a great reunion that is to come. The fourth great hope I want to share is, is the great renewal. Uh, you know, the, 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 these hearts of ours, these bodies of ours that get just worn out and exhausted uh, will be renewed and restored. Creation itself, like the world that we're, we're destroying, will be renewed and restored. Restored. These souls of ours, it's so hard to believe, will be made new, a kind of renewed naivete, a second optimism. You should go read Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. I can't read it right now, just this brilliant vision of the great renewal that is to come. The one that really grabbed my heart this week, imagining the age to come, is what I'm calling the great reversal. The great reversal. Now, if you go back to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you read books like Proverbs that tell a story that if you do what is good, life will go great. And then we have the story of Job, this parable that, that, that Job is a guy who does what's right, and yet things don't go so great. And then you've got the book of Ecclesiastes where it's like everything is meaningless, nothing matters, just do your job and try to like, keep peace if you can. In the age to come, there will be a great reversal. One of, the, one of the perennial questions of the Bible is, why do the wicked flourish? Why do people who are evil seem like life is going great for them all the time, while people who are righteous and godly and humble seem to suffer? There will be a great reversal that is to come. But if you broaden your imagination a little bit more, I think about the teaching of Jesus that in the kingdom of the heavens, many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first and i think who are some of the last and the least on planet earth right now and i don't you know surely the gospel the, the age to come is going to be deep relief to the walking worried you know and but 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 among people who live in affluence you know like us as as westerners as americans but think about the last and the least on earth right now think about how the gospel is good news to the poor do you remember in February when uh, the week before Valentine's Day when we had that wild snow and ice and, and and the Tulsa World reported that man who froze to death on the streets In the age to come there will be a great reversal and the gospel will prove to be good news to the poor whose prayers sometimes may feel ignored The gospel is going to prove to be good news to the forgotten There'll be a great reversal for those who feel forgotten I think one of the most depressing places that I've been on planet Earth was in Ginja, Azerbaijan, uh, in in a, a mental health institute. And that's dressing it up a little bit. Emily was pregnant with Libby, and we went with a, a mission team from Asbury. And, man, people live people live in such horrible conditions. In a mental institution in Ginja, Azerbaijan, we... We took these people out. What a great image. We took these people who'd been in this dark, very, very depressing, almost evil-feeling institution in in Azerbaijan. We took them out into the country, and we had a picnic, and they were dancing. What a memory. The age to come, one of our great hopes will be this great reversal. I think of of those who, who struggle with disabilities of some kinds in the world. I remember... When Emily and I were living in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, going down Suyapa Boulevard with our grocery store right there, there was a median, and there was a a man who didn't have any legs. And all day long, he went back and forth, scooting along on a skateboard, asking for handouts from people who were turning left into the neighborhood. I think about that guy that we always saw who was just always in this one ditch. And you think about people who live in in the most extreme of conditions and people who who struggle with with meaningful health and and mental mental challenges, and there will be a great reversal in the age to come. And then finally, I think about those who are discarded, who who have little visible worth in, in, you know, popular society. I was in the Bacal Valley in Lebanon with a group from World Vision, and we were visiting Syrian refugees. We're in view of the mountains that provide the border between Syria and Lebanon, and we're in this site where uh, 500 or so people were living, one of hundreds and hundreds of refugee camps. So we went into this little community that had very muddy pathways. In the winter, you're right by the mountains. It could get very cold, and these people are living on concrete slabs with tarp tents provided by the United Nations. And we're walking in and sitting on rugs and talking to women who've lost their, their husbands in the Syrian war and they've, they've come over the mountains at great cost and now here they are and their, their options are limited. And my friend Daniel and I were walking through this one muddy pathway and we came across a boy named Abdul Karim. I remember because it was the opposite of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Abdul Karim. Was sitting in this oversized, colorful bucket, just sitting there and and drooling. And I thought, oh my gosh, what would you do as a single mom with a special needs child who's 14 years old in a refugee camp? God will not forget. And there will be a great reversal in the age to come when many who are last will be first. And many of us who have received our fair share of honor in the present age will will receive a proper humility. There will be a great reversal. And all of this leads us to the sixth great hope that I want to share, which is the great revelry. The great celebration and feasting that is to come. And the Bible gives us this very colorful image of when, when, when history reaches its climax and heaven and earth kiss and we are reunited with him who our hearts desires that we'll gather around a table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's a vision of revelry and feasting and joy. Isaiah 25, which is quoted in this passage in Revelation, says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a, f- a rich f- feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The Lord, the sovereign Lord, will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, gathered around the table, Feasting with one another, feasting with those we love who preceded us in death, and feasting with Christ the Lamb, we will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him, so let's rejoice and be glad in His salvation. And then we cheers one another, and we drink to the reign of the Lamb. All of this is Christian hope. And all of this flows from the posture of God toward the world that he made, and it's a posture of love. All of the things that currently break our heart, all of those things that are wrong, are God promises to bring to rights. The injustice, injustice and the heartbreak out there, and even the evil in here, God is going to mend. And Like a shepherd, it says that he's going to tend us, and he's going to lead us to springs of living water. Numerous times in the New Testament, we're told, so encourage one another with these words. This has been a long, hard road, but it will have a good, good end. Lift up your eyes and remember, the King has come, and the King is coming again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our, our deepest desire is that you would come. Without any further ado, without any more waiting, would you come, Lord Jesus? Inaugurate, Establish completely your reign on earth. Any request we would ever make of you, Lord Jesus, is just like a, a, a sample of that deeper prayer. Would you come and make things right? Lord, we know the example of those who've gone before us, those who have faced death as followers of Jesus because they were confident of resurrection. I pray that you would give us just a taste of that kind of hope, that by your Holy Spirit you would renew and restore our ability to persevere, to continue to believe, to continue to hope against hope. I pray, Lord Jesus, for those of us who are just beaten down by life, by the disappointments of, of our most intimate relationships, by the difficulty of making ends meet, by just the, the, the challenge that it is to be a person. It can be so difficult for us, Jesus, to remember that we're a part of this grand narrative when we spend our days changing diapers and we spend our days you know, filing reports that feel like they don't have any ultimate meaning. We spend our days stuck in traffic and relational frustration. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do the work that Revelation is meant to do, that you would just animate our imagination and help us to find ourselves part of your story. I pray that you would anchor us in hope, that you would help us to persevere in difficulty, that you would help us to be truth-tellers to one another. Shape us and form us, Lord Jesus, into your image. As we take steps to lean into your story, to to read, to pray, to to live in Christian community, would you just bless it, cause it to be effective for establishing your kingdom in our lives and our hearts? And for those today, Lord, I I just want to pray in particular, for those who just find it difficult to believe today or just find themselves on the out and outs with you, would you just lasso them back in with the assurance that you love them, that you're working for good even when we can't see And Lord Jesus, as we come and receive Holy Communion today, I pray that you'd make it be so much more than just a wafer and juice for us, but a means by which, through the Holy Spirit, that we experience the power of the resurrected Jesus, a foretaste of the the party that is to come, the revelry that is to come when we feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So be present. Be present. Jesus, our High Priest, is you're present with your disciples.